0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Mastering the Testing for Common and Uncommon EGFR Mutations to Guide EGFR-Targeted Therapy in Advanced Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerreview.com forward slash kyj860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available.
1: Welcome. My name is Dr. Joshua Sabari, Thoracic Medical Oncology at NYU Langone Health Perlmutter Cancer Center. We'll be discussing mastering the testing for common and uncommon EGFR mutations to guide EGFR targeted therapy in advanced stage non-small cell lung cancer. The goals for the discussion today is to augment your knowledge of different types of common and less common EGFR mutations that are relevant in non-small cell lung cancer and therapies targeting these mutations. I wanted to equip you and your teams with skills to improve testing and treatment of patients with non-small cell lung cancer exhibiting these common and less common EGFR mutations. So let's jump in with biomarker testing and targeted therapy in NSCLC increasing needs and existing gaps. So there is a molecular revolution occurring in non-small cell lung cancer and really all solid tumor oncology. In non-small cell, over 11 different driver alterations have a potential match-approved therapies. We commonly think about EGFR and ALK. Those are the driver alterations that have been around the longest, but there are many other mutations such as HER2, ROS1, RET, NTRK, BRAF, BRAF, MedExon14, and KRAS G12C. Now with FDA-approved agents in the second line setting. Focusing really on EGFR mutations, these mutations make up over 20% of the driver alterations that we identify in non-small cell lung cancer. And the reason that these are so important is because we have matched FDA-approved therapies that not only improve patient outcome and survival, but also allow patients to live better and live longer with good quality of life. So here you can see the different approved therapies for the common EGFR mutations. Uncommon EGFR mutations also have approvals for effective. And the least common, the EGFR Exxon 20, with the recent approvals in the second line of amivantamab. And look forward to going into this discussion in a lot of detail during this talk. So despite having a wealth of information, a wealth of therapeutics for our patients who have driver alterations, there still remain significant gaps in biomarker testing in non-small cell lung cancer. The MyLung Consortium molecular testing study occurred between April 2018 and March 2020, so the data is a bit old, but what we identified in this population of patients was that if you looked at all five biomarker tests including EGFR, ALK, one BRAF, and pdl one expression, we were only about 50%, somewhere lower than that in our population. Clearly, EGFR, I think there's a lot more knowledge, and we're testing about 76% of our non squamous population. The non squamous histology enriches for these driver alterations, and ALK, we're at 76%. But if you look at some of the less common mutations like BRAF, in the non squamous population, we're only testing at about a rate of 59%. When you look at broad panel next generation sequencing, which we'll talk about, which is the standard of care, only 39% of patients with non-squamous histology were obtaining broad panel NGS. So still a predisposition to obtaining single gene testing. And we'll talk about why it is so important to move away from that, moving more towards broad panel NGS. know, somewhat more recent data going to 2021 from the flat iron electronic health record data looked at over 17,000 patients with metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. And what's exciting to see is that back in 2015, we were only profiling using broad panel NGS in about 28%. It peaked around 2020 at 68%, but unfortunately there is a decline in the last couple of years. So 2021, we're at 62%. So not only do we need to To test in all patients. We need to be vigilant about continuing to think about this in all patients with non-small cell lung cancer, whether they're smokers or never smokers. And then, you know, more recently, we saw another set from the Flatiron database, about 10,000 cases. And when you look at sort of ethnicity and race differences between white patients and black patients, there are major discrepancies in NGS testing. So NGS testing as a whole, 43.8% in our black patient population and 54.7% in our white patient population. And if you look at pre-first line, so before making our determination for therapy, it's as low as 29 97 percent in our black patient population and 36.6% in our white patient population. So we're seeing discrepancies in testing. We're also seeing disparities in different patient populations. So really important to test all patients, really all you need are lungs in order to do broad panel next generation sequencing in this patient population. So let's jump into the biomarker testing in NSCLC. We'll talk about best practices and key recommendations in this patient population. So what are the necessary biomarker tests for patients with lung cancer? So we reviewed some of this already, but again, it's critical to identify all biomarker tests upfront before selecting therapy for patients. Again, if you select treatment before having your biomarker test back, you may be selecting the incorrect therapeutic for your patient. Again, we want patients to have the best possible outcomes with the best possible selection. So what's critical is pdl one expression, and we're pretty good at that. You know, in our sense, we have that in about 100% of patients. It's done reflexively, and we get that back in 48 hours generally. So it's sometimes hard to sit on our hands while we see that pdl one of 50% or 100%. We also need to test for genomic alterations, and here's where broad panel next-generation sequencing becomes very important. And we mentioned the common driver alterations of EGFR and ALK and KRAS, but also the less common drivers are critical, ROS1, BRAF, MET. RET HER2 and NTRAC fusion. And again, this guides initial therapy in advanced non-squamous non-small cell lung cancer. And now we're even starting to test some patients in the early stage setting, given the recent approvals, adjuvant osimertinib as well as adjuvant electinib in the ALK uh, population. So what type of testing and who do we test in? Well, we generally recommend doing broad panel NGS. You know, RNA is preferred over DNA in my practice. You can identify more fusions using RNA-based assays. And the question always comes up is, do you sequence just your non-squame, your adenocarcinoma population, or do you sequence all patients with lung cancer? And really the answer in 2024 and moving forward is to sequence all patients with lung cancer. Even squame histology, you can identify 1% to 2% of patients patients with a driver alteration. KRAS can occur uncommonly, but it can occur in the SWAM patient population, specifically mixed histology. And remember, when you get small samples, you may not have all the information on your patients. So not only the type of test matters, but interpreting the results is just as important. So know what you're looking for. Humility here is critical. I commonly reach out to colleagues to say, hey, have you seen this EGFR exon 20 insertion mutation before? Is this something actionable? What is the best therapeutic here? And just saying biomarker is positive or negative really is outdated. We really need to understand the level of detail, such as what is the driver? Is it KRAS? What is the allele? Is it KRAS G12C? And what is the PD-L1 expression. So, you know, thinking about that sort of complexity and the same with EGFR, it's not enough to just say or write in your note EGFR mutation. We need to know, is it EGFR exon 19? Is it L858R exon 21? We'll talk about those are the common activating mutations. Is it a less common or uncommon atypical mutation, which we'll talk about, or is it the most uncommon exon 20 insertion mutation? So granularity here is critical in our patients. So how are we doing testing in our practice? Well, we have to really think about balancing comprehensive testing with availability of tumor tissue. We know turnaround time is important, as well as the realities of reimbursement in our patient population. So in an ideal world, we would have reflexive testing. So the pathologist, before we even met the patient, would have these tests obtained. And then we sit down with the patient. These would already have resulted or in the process of being done. And this really leaves no patient behind. There is a risk of over. Testing, you may test too many patients, for example. There's always worry about cost and reimbursement and potentially liability, right? What if the patient never does make it to your appointment and they have a known EGFR mutation? We know the positives here is that it could significantly decrease the time to treatment as well as help us with tumor quantity and quality because the pathologist up front is thinking about doing broad panel NGS, they're going to try to save and conserve as much tissue as possible for this critical test. What commonly happens, unfortunately, in our practice and probably yours is that the oncologist initiates testing. So the patient has to wait to see us in the office until we initiate testing and tissue can take three to four weeks on average to come back. So, right, we know that patients wait from the biopsy to the results, to the imaging, to the request by the oncologist for the next generation sequencing and again that takes three four weeks for that report to result and only then can we then go over the full biomarker results so in an ideal world this would be done in a reflex manner and this is what we're starting to see in large medical centers across the country so at least one-third of the u.s patients start on a non-targeted therapy so it's either chemotherapy or immunotherapy or chemo and immunotherapy the keynote 189 regimen most commonly without having molecular results or without having having full molecular results. And that's really a problem in 2024. What about liquid biopsy? So liquid biopsies can help us with turnaround time. We know that liquid biopsy is a non-invasive way of identifying somatic alterations in patients. This is using peripheral blood, looking at CT DNA in the plasma. And the turnaround time here is phenomenal. It's five to seven days on average. However, it is costly. And I think very important to understand is that if this test is non-diagnostic, meaning it didn't identify any tumor DNA in the peripheral circulation, it does not mean that it is negative, right? So you go fishing and you don't catch a fish. It doesn't mean that no fish were in the ocean. It just means that you didn't catch a fish that day. So if positive, you can act on these results. So very, very high positive predictive value. However, if negative or non-diagnostic, you really do need to fall back on tissue-based NGS. And, you know, different ways of doing this, sequential testing, so only when tissue fails, or complementary, doing them together. And that's what I commonly do in my clinic. Plasma-first approach, which is really starting to become more popular. So when the biopsy is not possible or it's delayed or to only obtain this really at treatment resistance, and that's more of a historic sort of relic, we now obtain this, particularly in our driver mutant population up front, as well as at the time of resistance to try to identify actionable resistance alterations. So a lot of the advantages of liquid biopsy is that you have that quick turnaround time we talked about. You're able to understand the heterogeneity of the tumor, right? So with the tissue biopsy, you only get the NGS results or the molecular results from that lesion. With plasma, you're able to assess the heterogeneity of all the potential metastatic sites of disease. Plasma cannot give you histology, so that's one major disadvantage. And again, if non-diagnostic or quote-unquote negative, you really do need to fall back on tissue-based NGS. So let's jump into the different subtypes of EGFR mutations. And I think the ones that we all know of and hear about in our practices are the common mutations, also sometimes called the activating mutations. These are mutations in exon 19. This is a deletion in exon 19. We also hear a lot about L858R, exon 21, and this makes up about 80 to 85% of the EGFR mutations. And historically, we remember the first generation EGFR TKI, such as erlotinib and Jafel, Fitnib, the second-generation inhibitors like Afatinib, Dacomitinib, and then more recently, the third-generation inhibitors, osimertinib, which we'll talk about in quite some detail. Highly effective therapeutic strategy in the common activating mutations. What about the uncommon mutations? So, mutations in G719 or L861Q and S7681, these occur in about 8 to 10% of the patient population, and it's important to note, outside of L861Q, the G719, and S768I are oftentimes resistant to third-generation EGFR TKI, and the FDA-approved label here is for Afatinib, a second-generation inhibitor. And then the least common mutation are these exon 20 insertion mutations occurring at about 5% of EGFR mutations, or if you look more globally, about 1% of all non-small cell lung cancer. And here, the only approval currently to date now is amivantamab in the second line setting and EGFR and MET by specific. Lobocertinib was approved, but was removed from the market due to a negative first line study and look forward to discussing how these therapeutics are now rapidly evolving in to the front line setting. So with EGFR exon 20 insertions, we talked about these being the most rare, about 4 or 5% of EGFR mutant lung cancer and about 1% of non-small cell lung cancer. And the reason these are so important to identify and differentiate or distinguish from the common EGFR mutations is that erlotinib and gefitinib have very poor activity in this population. Median progression-free survival, about one and a half to two months. fatnib on order of three months. And osimertinib, even looking at some of the prospective trials with small numbers, about 20, 25 patients, response rates as low as 20 to 25%. So we know that this patient population, the exon 20 insertions have a worse prognosis than the other EGFR mutant non-small cell lung cancer. And important to note here that EGFR exon 20 insertions are not just one mutation. These are over a hundred different insertion mutations that have been identified. So really important to test and to test correctly for this patient population education. So for the EGFR exon 20 insertion population, you could see that there are so many different ranges of alterations. They all occur in the tyrosine kinase domain, but some can occur in the C helix. And we know that their first generation EGFR TKI may have some sensitivity in some of the lesions, particularly an exon 20 insertion, the FQEA, but many others will not have sensitivity, usually those occurring in the loop following the C helix. And again, really important to understand granularity in the exon 20 insertion mutant population. So testing for EGFR and beyond, the guidelines here really are going to support comprehensive broad panel NGS. Now, historically and commonly, XUS, we're still using these PCR-based assays. And it's important to know for PCR-based assays, you're going to miss a significant number of the EGFR mutant variants. Yes, we'll commonly pick up LE58R and Exxon19DEL, which are the common EGFR mutations, but you'll miss many of the uncommon as well as the Exxon12 insertion mutations, and I'll show you some of that prospective data, the benefit for PCR-based assays is that there's extremely fast turnaround time, less DNA required. But again, it's a piecemeal test, and we oftentimes will run out of tissue if we need to do piecemeal testing for every single gene. Whereas comprehensive next-generation sequencing, either DNA or RNA-based, and again, we usually recommend using RNA-based assays if available, is because it can give us more of a complement of the fusions that may be missed based on DNA-based. Assays, But doing broad panel NGS will really allow us to detect not only the common mutations, but also the rare variants and complex alterations that we may not be able to identify in these single gene tests. So one of the strategies that I use in my clinical practice is this parallel testing strategy, where at the same time of meeting patients, and again, unfortunately, we do not have reflex testing for tissue. That would be the gold standard, and I think we're all working towards that. But when I meet the patient in the office for their new visit consultation, I'm obtaining plasma NGS at that time, as well as ordering comprehensive genomic testing. And the reason that is so important is because the plasma will have a rapid turnaround time for me on average five business days, whereas the comprehensive genomic testing might take two to three weeks. And again, the critical importance here is that if you identify a mutation on plasma, you can act upon it. it's 99% sensitive and specific. And if you don't identify it, you need to really fall back on broad panel next generation sequencing. So this is looking at real-world data identifying EGFR exon 20 insertions from the Genie database run by ECR. This is the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer presented in 2020. And what's really impressive here is that if you look at the PCR-based assays in the same population that underwent NGS, the PCR-based assays, remember, these single-gene test assays, will miss 50%, 5-0% of the exon 20 insertion mutations. So really important, if you're going to do any test, do broad panel NGS, not only for EGFR, but again, for all the driver alterations, it's more cost effective, it's more efficient, and also you will miss less alterations by doing broad panel next generation sequencing. So that was a foray into sort of the testing paradigm in the frontline setting for metastatic disease. Let's jump into the EGFR targeted therapy strategies in advanced non-small cell lung cancer. And let's start with the common EGFR mutations. So this is really a success story in oncology, showing that utilizing biomarker-driven strategies can really improve patient survival, but again, more importantly, improve patient's quality of life. So we again had approvals of first and second generation EGFR inhibitors, and in 2018, we saw this publication, the FLORA trial, which was a randomized phase three study of osimertinib, a third generation EGFR TKI, versus jefitinib or erlotinib, first generation EGFR. GFR TKI. And what you could see here, it's quite impressive, both ostimertinib and and erlotinib, the two waterfall plots here, very impressive therapeutic, right? These medicines work. In patients, you see very nice responses. Where you see these drugs start to differentiate is with progression-free survival. Osimertinib on average, 18.9 months, median PFS, whereas jafitnib and erlotinib in that 10 to 12-month range, median PFS. And more importantly, when you look at overall survival, remember, that's what we care most about for our patients. And this study did allow for cross over right because osimertinib became standard of care. Even allowing for crossover, there is a significant benefit in overall survival for osimertinib thirty-eight point six months versus gefitinib and erlotinib thirty-one point eight months. And this led to the you know broad approval first in two thousand eighteen based on progression free survival, and then in twenty twenty based on overall survival. And the story here is that osimertinib had activity in T790M, a common resistance mechanism to first and second generation EGFR TKI, and equally as important, osimertinib had phenomenal cns activity cns penetration and this has become a standard of care now in the frontline setting now how do we build upon this right because even in our patients with egfr mutant lung cancer the five-year survivals remain low it's about 10 or 15 percent and we showed you that the median overall survival is a little over three years so how do we build upon this so the Flora 2 trial was recently presented at World Conference Lung Cancer and we saw an update at ESMO 2023. The Flora 2 trial looked at osimertinib in combination with chemotherapy versus osimertinib alone. And the goal here was to try to understand if the addition of chemotherapy upfront could treat the persister cell population leading to improvement in PFS and hopefully in the future improvement in overall survival. And I think what's exciting here in this study is that PFS per investigator assessment, as well as Bicker, Blinded Independent Central Review, showed an impressive improvement in progression-free survival. So when you look at the investigator assessed, that was the primary endpoint in the study, osimertinib plus chemotherapy at a 25.5 month median progression-free survival versus osimertinib monotherapy, 16.7 months. And that's really important to think about. And there is a potential improvement in the CNS recurrence rate in this patient population in the pemetrexed. treatment it are important to note that in this prospective study, we did not look at CNS imaging as a routine mechanism. So it was not written into the trial. But again, the question is who do you use this regimen? And we don't yet have overall survival, but one of the criticisms of this trial is potentially that all patients will receive chemotherapy or most patients will receive chemotherapy at progression on osimertinib. So will there truly be a survival benefit or not? You know, We need to see that data as it emerges. More recently at ESMO 2023, we saw the Mariposa trial. And this is really a paradigm changing study, in my opinion, because it is a new mechanism of action in a therapy for our EGFR mutant population. So this study looked at amivantamab and we mentioned amivantamab earlier. It's an EGFR and met by specific antibody in combination with lazertinib. Lazertinib is a third generation EGFR inhibitor. It looked at that combination versus osimertinib in the frontline setting there also was a control arm of lazertinib alone for contribution of components. And again, the primary endpoint here in the study was progression-free survival by the Blinded Independent Central Review Committee. And it is important to note that in this trial, we did mandate CNS imaging with MRI brain routine intervals with the imaging of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis. So for amivantamab and lazertinib, median progression-free survival of 23.7 months versus osimertinib alone of C. months. So positive study hazard ratio here of 0.7. When you look at the overall survival data, it is still immature, but trending towards positivity with a hazard ratio of 0.8. Now, why would somebody use amivantamab and lazertinib, Or why would someone use osimertinib and chemo over Osimertinib alone. I think what people really talk about here is there is clearly a benefit when you think about AMI and lazertinib or OSI and chemo over Osimertinib alone, but at what cost to our patients? And I think that's a really important thing to think about. For the Mariposa trial, AMI and lazertinib, we did see higher rates of EGFR and net-related adverse events. So infusion related reaction, for example, upfront occurring at about 65 to 70% of patients, very well managed by splitting dose and Giving treatment We did see a threefold increase in the venous thromboembolism rate in patients on AMI and lazertinib. And to manage that, we do recommend utilizing anticoagulation for the first month of therapy. And we do see a slight increased rate of uh, skin toxicity with AMI in combination with lazertinib. When you look at the ossimertinib plus chemo, you know, clearly chemotherapy has its own unique toxicities, the hematologic toxicities. And on the Flora 2 study, we did see increased rates of neutropenia and anemia and thrombocytopenia compared to ossimertinable alone. So really, it's a discussion to have with your patient in the office. For me, if it's a young, fit, healthy patient, I'm going to offer amivantamab and lazertinib in combination over osimertinib alone because it is a new and novel mechanism with hopefully data trending towards positive survival here. If it's an older patient, less fit, for example, or somebody who may live further away from the uh, cancer center, remember, both amilaz as well as chemo are medications that need to be given in the cancer center setting. So if somebody is older or a list further away, I may really opt for osteovertinib alone. But again, I think it's important to understand your patient population and to review this data with them in the clinical practice. So what are some of the mechanisms of resistance to first-line osimertinib? We don't yet have data for resistance to amivantamab and lazertinib, or osimertinib and chemo, but I'm sure these are going to start to emerge. You know, we think about net amplification as a common resistance mechanism. That's an off-target or off-EGFR mechanism. And then we also think about EGFR-directed resistance, such as point mutations like C797S and exon 20. And when we compare first-second-generation resistance the third-generation EGFR TKI resistance, really, they're all over the place for the post-third-generation EGFR TKI. Remember, for first- and second-generation EGFR inhibitors, 60% of people had one resistance mechanism, T790M. And that's why osimertinib was so successful. But again, because osimertinib is such a good drug now in the frontline setting, the resistance mechanisms are all over the map, as you can see here. So lots of different strategies trying to target this. So for example, a growing data set for fourth-generation EGFR those targeting C797S. We also have a whole range of therapeutics targeting MET and MET amplification. So using MET TKI, for example, I have a patient who had a BRAP v 600 e mediated resistance to EGFR third generation TKI. And those patients can be treated with combination strategies, unfortunately off-label. More recently, we're seeing amivantamab and lazertinib, which you mentioned in the front line, also being utilized in the second line, as well as the HER3-DXD, to tridimab durexatecan, we know that HER3 is overexpressed in this patient population. So talking about the amivantumab plus chemo plus minus lazertinib, this is the Mariposa 2 trial, and this is data we saw presented at ESMO 2023. Really interesting data in the second line setting post-progression on osimertinib. You see the three arms here in purple, amivantumab, lazertinib plus chemo. When you look at versus chemotherapy alone in gray, has a ratio here of 0.44. But when you look at ami chemo versus chemo, this is the blue line versus the gray line and has a ratio here also of 0.48. So, a significant improvement in progression free survival by blinded independent central review with the addition of amivantamab. Again, we saw increased toxicity with amylase and chemo. And, you know, I would consider utilizing amy chemo in this patient population, but we need to see the full data sets as well as overall survival emerge in this patient population. And then lastly, the 0 one I already mentioned, Patritumab Duroxatecan. This is a HER3-ADC, HER3-DXD, Deroxatecan, chemotherapy, warhead. And we studied this in the second, now third-line setting. Response rates initially about 39% have come down a little bit, but very exciting. We've seen CNS activity, and we are now studying this in combination with osimertinib in early stage studies in the frontline setting. So more to come in this space. Now moving off of the common EGFR mutations to the less common EGFR mutations, let's jump into the exon 20 insertion mutation. We talked briefly about amivantamab already, an FDA-approved agent here in the second line setting for exon 20. This is a drug that both targets EGFR and MET. It could bind extracellular portion of EGFR as well as having an immune targeting effect in this patient population. So also at ESMO, we studied this therapeutic amivantamab in the frontline setting. And the study was really neatly designed. I was fortunate to be a part of this trial where we studied amivantamab plus chemotherapy versus chemotherapy alone, a randomized phase three trial. And those patients who received amivantamab plus chemotherapy had a median progression free survival of 11.4 months. Versus chemotherapy alone of 6.7 months. And remember that this patient population, the OXON-20 insertion mutation patients, do not respond well to Osimertinib, a third-generation EGFR-TKI, or Erlotinib, gefitinib, first-gen, or Afatinib, the second-generation EGFR-TKI. So this, to me, will now become the standard of care in the frontline setting. Hazard ratio here, you could see, of 0.395. Quite impressive in the treatment arm versus the control arm. Now, what about amivantamab in the pretreated treated EGFR-exon 20 population? We presented this data about three years ago now, initially in 2020, FDA approved in 2021. In patients in the second-line setting, post-chemo, we saw response rates of 40% median duration of response, 11.1 months, with a median progression-free survival of 8.3 months. And what's important to note is you saw broad activity of this therapeutic across all different exon 20 insertion mutations, helical region, near loop, or far loop. Remember, some of the small molecules that TKIs may have differential responses in different locations for the exon 20 insertion mutations. So what are some of the other emerging EGFR TKI in the Exxon 20 space? There are many therapies now being looked at. Here you can see the second line and greater agents like Sun Sunvazertinib, CLN081, and more recently Blue451, as well as a whole bevy of studies now moving into the frontline setting. We talked about amivazimab plus chemo, the Papillon trial, the Mobocertinib study, unfortunately negative, exclaimed too, but more recently Sunvazertinib as well as Fermanertinib. And here we look in the data for sunvizertinib, and this is patients who are treatment-naive receiving sunvizertinib in the frontline at both the 200 milligram as well as 300 milligram dose. This is a HER2 EGFR exon 20 inhibitor TKI. And what's really impressive here is a 78.6% response rate in the frontline setting, median duration of response of about 9.2 months, and PFS ranging in the 10 to 12-month range in the 200 and 300 milligram dose, respectively. So let's jump into a case-based discussion testing and treatment of EGFR mutant non-small cell lung cancer, maybe putting all of that data into perspective. We talked about testing of EGFR, broad panel NGS being so critical, important, understanding the detail of the mutation. It's not enough to say just an EGFR mutation, but we need to really drill down in what is the EGFR mutation and is it common, uncommon, is it activating? And what are the different therapeutic opportunities for our patients with these different EGFR mutations? So let's jump into two cases here. So case one is a 69-year-old man who never smoked, who's presented with chest pain and shortness of breath. Imaging showed a pleural effusion, and the PET-CT identified a left upper lobe mass as well as mediastinal lymphadenopathy that was FDG-AVID. Patient underwent a pleural biopsy, and you could see here that the cytology was called atypical, then underwent a CT-guided core biopsy of the lung mass, and you could see the core needle here. And for non-pathologists watching, it's so important here to understand the pathology. That's really where the diagnosis is made, both from an architecture standpoint, but also when we do broad panel. NGS, if you don't have sufficient tissue, you can't correctly do the testing for our patients. And how frustrating is that when you have insufficient tissue or unfortunately QNS on these NGS uh, tests? So you can see that this patient had an adenocarcinoma morphology on the left here, comparing adenocarcinoma versus squamous. And again, our pathologist doing multiple different stains here, adenocarcinoma TTF1 positive versus squamous morphology, usually P40 or P63 positive in this setting. So this patient has circulating cell-free DNA. So liquid biopsy done, and they're identified to have an EGFR L858R mutation identified in 13% variant allele fraction. And a lot of clinicians ask me, do these percentages matter? And what is the level of detection for a different test? And really look at your commercial vendor or your academic vendor that you're utilizing. Different assays has different levels of detection, but in general, a variant allele frequency greater than 0.01% is a positive and can identify a driver that you can connect upon with a therapeutic option. So this patient is initiated on osimertinib, a third-generation EGFR TKI based on the flora data we discussed, but progressed after only one month of treatment. And again, this is unfortunate. This is not commonly seen in practice. We know the response rates are about 80%, about 10% of patients have stable disease, but 10% of patients are primary refractory and actually do have progression up front. So let's jump to an audience poll and faculty discussion question here. So a patient with advanced EGFR mutant lung adenocarcinoma has progressive disease on treatment with osimertinib. What are your next steps? Number 1, do you sit tight and EGFR TKIs usually take a while to start working? Number two, is it change in treatment to another EGFR TKI? Number three, are you going to change treatment to chemoimmunotherapy? Number four, are you going to draw a blood sample for circulating cell-free DNA testing? Or number five, are you going to send a tissue biopsy for genomic alteration? So this patient has NGS done on a diagnostic biopsy here. And you can see that this patient has an L858R mutation. Here, the variant allele frequency in the tissue much higher. Remember, the percent tumor is much higher in a core needle biopsy than if you're searching for a needle in a haystack in the peripheral circulation, looking for cell-free DNA. This patient also, based on NGS, is identified to have MET amplification. It's confirmed on fish, and again, this is one of the critical reasons why broad panel NGS is so important. This MET amplification was missed on plasma NGS, and we know that osimertinib may not be effective in MET amplified patients. Controversial, what MET high is considered? I commonly think about it as greater than nine copy number alteration, but you know anything greater than three may drive resistance in this patient population. And again, so important to broadly profile your patients, not only upfront but also at progression to identify resistance mechanisms for potential match targeted therapy. And again, many different therapeutics being studied in this patient population, the EGFR met by specific, for example, amivadumab may have activity here, met TKI for example, like capmatinib, tepotinib or savolitinib may have activity in this population. Again, in combination with the third generation EGFR TKI. So what are some of the key points of this case? Despite the documented efficacy of osimertinib, we know that resistance inevitably develops or sometimes may be de novo resistant up front. And we know that metamplification is a reported resistance mechanism in upwards of 15% of patients. Histologic transformation, which we don't commonly think of when we're with the patient, can occur. And we're seeing this occur in about 15 to 20% of patients. The story here is you'll have a patient doing very well and then very quickly will develop rapid. Its symptoms and large growth of the disease. So again, If you see this rapid progression of disease, think histologic transformation, where you do need a biopsy. You cannot identify that on plasma alone in 2024. Getting a biopsy will help you, and then adding the correct chemotherapeutic in that patient population is critical. We know that combined EGFR and MET inhibition has shown promise, particularly in the MET amplified or MET overexpressed patient population. And again, tissue NGS may be extremely helpful here in understanding resistance at disease progression. There's a real question of the reliability of amplification on plasma versus tissue. We know that plasma NGS can report metamplification, but it's really a guesstimate or a guess of what the amplification copy number is. We know that plasma will oftentimes miss amplification. The true gold standard is tissue-based NGS or FISH testing, which has really fallen out of favor. Again, it's a piecemeal test in this patient population. Let's jump into a second case here. This is case number two. A 71-year-old woman with a light-smoking history who presented with cough. The CT scan shows a 4.7-centimeter left lower lobe mass. On PET, it's extremely avid. Patient has a staging mediastinoscopy done. And again, really, we've fallen out of favor doing mediastinoscopies more commonly by doing uh, EBUS endobronchial ultrasound-guided biopsy via bronchoscopy. And the patient is seen to have early-stage disease, so N0. They undergo a lobectomy up front, and there's an R0 resection, so a T2B and zero adenocarcinoma, they complete adjuvant chemotherapy. Unfortunately, three-month follow-up, and how common do we see this in our practice, right? Three-month post-resection, the patient is identified to have new pulmonary nodules consistent with metastatic disease. They undergo a biopsy, and tumor genotyping is requested. ALK and ROS1 here is negative. Patient had a reflex quick IHC. The rapid EGFR testing was also negative for the common Exxon 19 DEL and L858R, But then you did the right test. You got broad panel next generation sequencing. And lo and behold, you identify a uncommon or rare EGFR exon 20 insertion mutation. And again, a quick word on nomenclature here. This is actually a duplication rather than an insertion and really should be annotated as this A767V769 duplication. And just for the sake of humility here, I'll get these reports back. And I commonly, and I'm an expert in this space, I commonly will reach out to call to say, hey, have you seen this insertion mutation? Have you seen this duplication? Is this something that is actionable? Because these are not common alterations in our clinical practice. And again, over a hundred different alterations in the exon20 space. So let's jump to an audience poll and faculty discussion. What is the clinical significance of an in-frame EGFR exon 20 duplication mutation detected in tumor cells of a patient with advanced lung adenocarcinoma? Number one, is this mutation that predicts response to first-generation EGFR TKI? Number two, this is a mutation that predicts response to amivantamab and historically mobocertinib but has since been removed? Number three, is this mutation not targetable and therefore chemotherapy is the best Option? Or number four, is this mutation not clinically relevant and it may just be a benign polymorphism? So some of the key points here for this case is that focused tumor genotyping is often inadequate for detection. Remember, piecemeal testing will miss 50% of the driver exon 20 insertion mutations, and you really need to do broad panel next generation sequencing. Amivantamab is FDA approved for patients with advanced non-small cell lung cancer with EGFR exon 20 insertions who have progressed on chemotherapy. And we talked about the positive phase 3 study in the frontline setting. And from a molecular standpoint, point, some panels that we look at for exon 20 may not capture the full spectrum, particularly when we use DDPCR or these PCR-based assays. We really, really want to utilize broad panel next-generation sequencing. So thank you for joining me on the journey through EGFR mutations. Again, Critical to test all patients with broad panel next generation sequencing. And thinking about the EGFR population, it's a complex space, a growing space, an exciting time for our patients. And again, matching your patients the best possible therapy to improve outcomes, survival, but also quality of life here is critical. Thank you for your attention and time.
0: This activity is certified by PVI, Peer Review Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerviewcom forward slash KYJ 860. The activity is supported by an educational grant from Janssen Biotech Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC.